0: question for you guys. We've been talking about a topic for the last couple of weeks. I just want to see how many of you have been paying attention. Love. love. What chapter in the Bible talks about love? Thank you. 1 Corinthians 13. And we've had some powerful uh, presentations the last couple of weeks. Um, Pastor Dukamis 2 weeks ago shared with about the vitality of having love as part of our witness and without it we don't really have anything. Last week Pastor Chris gave us a clear picture of what love is, what it looks like in practicality and what it doesn't look like. I didn't know exactly what to share for myself, but as I read 1 uh, Corinthians 13 There was one small phrase that jumped out at me in in the fifth, fifth verse of the 13th chapter, where it says there that love seeketh not his own. What does that mean? In a nutshell, what it's saying is love is not selfish. And if love doesn't seek its own, what is it seeking? It must be seeking others. As I read more about love, I saw that not only would it seek others, it would really go after them. It it was almost as if it were a rescue. It would be a love that would sacrifice. John 15, verses 12 and 13 says, it talks about this love. It says, greater love hath no man than to lay down his self for his friends. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to die, although that would be the absolute furthest, most extreme example of love, but maybe it also could mean that you're willing to give of yourself, perhaps lay some of your ambitions and thoughts aside for the good of someone else. How many of you have ever been lost? Quite a few of you. When I was a child, I didn't grow up around here. I was born in in Baltimore, and if you hear my voice, that may give it away just a little bit through the accent. I lived there until 12 years old, and as most people living in that area, they go on vacations in the summer to Ocean City. And so, one summer, I was about five years old, when we went out there, had a great time, went to the beach, played in the, the sand and in the water, went up and down the boardwalk, and inevitably, somewhere, when we would go there, we would end up going shopping. The parents, namely probably my mother, would enjoy going and looking around at the knickknacks that they had. But even though she enjoyed it, when you go with a five-year-old boy, it makes it a little bit less enjoyable. Because inevitably, I would be tugging on your hand, asking the question probably a million times, is it time to go? Is it time to go? I had to find ways to occupy myself. And so this one time, I decided, I know, let's play hide-and-seek. So I looked around to find a good place to hide, and there was a circular of clothes, uh, a rack, with all the clothes hanging on there. And so I just quietly slipped right in there, and I found a little perch that I could even climb up into. So if someone were looking from beneath, you couldn't see me, or I was just gone, you couldn't see me at all. And this was all great and fun, but there was one problem, is no one else was playing. I forgot to tell them their part in the game. I was sitting there perched up, and I could see the game unfolding. I could see my mother turn to my father and say, where's Michael? Slowly, there was anxiety that went to concern as they began to search close to there, and when they realized they couldn't find me, their search radius grew. Finally, they went to the door, looked up and down down the street. They could not find me. I was doing a really good job. As the game pursued, they decided they need a little help, so they went and talked to the manager of the store. He became involved. I was doing really, really good. It wasn't long before I heard another noise, though. I heard footsteps, and these were a foreboding force, uh, footsteps. You could tell it almost had an ominous sound to it. The title of my sermon this morning is 1% Search and Rescue. I have a couple questions um, I want to get you all involved. So I have three different questions. The first one is going to be for the young ones. I know we have a, we're blessed with a lot of young kids. One percent is basically a word. It means one in a hundred. So if I had a hundred dollar bill, this is for the young kids, and I said, what is one in those hundred, how much would I have? How much? One dollar. Good job, guys. All right. So, my next age group, this one's a little bit harder because we're dealing with a lo- uh, smaller figure. This one will be our college young adult age. If I had a dollar and I were to ask you, what is 1% of that? What would that be? A penny. A penny. Not a very big figure, but significant, just the same as we'll find out. And for our older folks, I have to ask you this. Do you remember the last time that a penny was able to buy you anything? I think you're going to have to think back quite a ways. I remember when I was a kid, about 35 to 40 years ago, I was a young boy, we had a gumball machine, and it would take pennies. And so, when you put your penny in, you could turn the crank, and you would get a piece of gum. The only thing is, really, that was an outdated thing, because 35 years ago, a penny wouldn't even really buy you a piece of gum. See, this was an antique gumball machine. So maybe it would be about 50 to 60 years ago that a penny could buy you something. One percent percent—it's not a lot. This summer, we had the privilege of going to the Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., and they had a special exhibit on the penny. Should it be kept, it said. There's two groups out there. One group, who their sole purpose is to get rid of the penny. Another group, they want to keep the penny, and so it displayed there the reasons for keeping or getting rid of the penny. The first group who wanted to retire the penny, they said that the penny is practically worthless in itself. If you want to make a penny, it costs about 1.7 cents just to make one penny. So if we were to make a $100,000 worth of pennies, it would cost $170,000. It doesn't seem like a very good investment. So why, if this thing is so worthless, would you ever want to keep it? Well, the group that wants to keep it argue that if we get rid of it, we're going to have issues with inflation. You see, when you go to pay your bill and it comes to $17.46, they're not going to round down the bill. They're going to say, you pay $17.50. This may seem like a small thing, but when it's repeated over and over and over, it can come to millions of dollars and thus create inflation and be bad for the economy. Not only that is, it carried a sentimental value. It had Lincoln on it, who we look to as a great leader, also charities, like the Salvation and Army, they, they make a living off of these little things that people are so willing and have no problem giving away. One percent, it's a small figure. Is it worth it? Does it really make a difference? Back in 2010, a gentleman named Dale, Brailsf- uh, Dale Brailsford, was tasked with taking over the managerial for a cycling team called Team Sky. It's Britain's cycling team. Now, he had taken over a group that had never won anything. Whereas they were elite athletes, they just weren't able to get over the the hump, as it were, to, to really succeed. And so he came up with a plan, and he called it his aggregation of marginal gains. He knew since these were elite athletes, there's nothing major he could do, but if by doing perhaps fine tunes, if he could change 1% of multiple different areas, all of those added up together could make a big difference. So he did that. He looked at their nutrition plan, and he optimized it by just a small bit to be the best for them, their training program. He looked at their bike seats, whether it was ergonomically correct. He changed it so that they would be able to uh, ride their bike the most efficiently that they possibly can. They left no stone unturned. They looked at their bedding, their pillows, which pillow would offer the best night's sleep so they could be able to perform the best. They had a five-year goal. And I'll tell you this morning, they did not meet their goal in five years, but that's because they met it in two years. In 2012, 2013, Team Sky was able to win the Tour de France both years. And in fact, during that that run in the Olympics, they won 70 percent of all the medals in cycling for that year. One percent, small but powerful. And this morning, I wanted to talk about a group that is the 1%. As I was doing a little bit of research, I went to Google, and I was unable to find this group at all. I read all about a a motorcycle gang named the 1%ers. I read about a rich group of people who are the financial elite, the 1%. But I didn't see anything, and I realized that I was really searching in the wrong place because if you want to find out what God has to say about a topic, it's best to look in the Bible and not at Google. This morning, I want to talk to you about a group that is found in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And before we read, I want to have a quick word of prayer. Dear Father, Lord, this morning we come before you, Lord. I pray as we seek you and seek your face, Lord, that you would show yourself to us, Father. As we will find out, it's not so much anything that we will do, Lord, but you in revealing yourself to us, Lord. Speak through me. In your name we pray. Amen. Luke 15 beginning in verse 11 This is the parable of the lost son And he says then he said a certain man had two sons And the younger of them said to his father Father give me the portion of goods that falls to me So he divided them to his him his livelihood And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeying to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. I can imagine the son had heard stories of how things were out there in in the city, all the glamour, all the opportunities that would be waiting for him. You know, he was forced to live here with his father, in a sheltered environment. So he walked to, went to his father and he asked him, you know I have an inheritance and it would be a shame if I were to have to wait. Would you just give it to me now? The father probably voiced some concern and as fathers do had some fatherly advice, some wisdom for him, but the son was undeterred. And so the father gave him this money, and the son left. As he arrived to this faraway country, he found it to be what he had thought it would be at first. He found all the amusements, all the glamour, all that anything that money could provide, there it was for him. No doubt, he felt satisfied for for a time. And then the Bible says he spent his money on prodigal living, or in some translations, extravagant living. In verse 14, But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. His money was gone. With his money being gone, his friends had left forced, because of hunger, to find a job, to simply feed his stomach. He was working with pigs, which for a young Jewish man was probably an absolute abomination. They didn't even want to get close to these dirty objects. This young man, who felt that his liberty had been restricted, he was seeking freedom, suddenly finds himself in bondage. He had sought a fortune now he was impoverished, forsaken by his friends. All that enticement, everything had disappeared. His dream had turned into a nightmare. He learned the truth that to live without God is waste. And as he began to sit there, hungry and dirty, he realized how much better it was with his father. There's another half of the story that we don't often hear about. The other half of the story is the father. See, the father never forgot, and from the moment that his son left, his heart was aching, longing for his son uh, to return. There was a constant concern for his safety. There was a sadness, an emptiness. Inside, While his son was gone, there was absolutely no rest for the father. He was constantly searching and watching. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. As you read it in the story, it doesn't say that the father waited for the son to come all the way to the door thinking, well, there he is. I told him he shouldn't have gone. I've thought to myself, maybe I would react that way. Maybe I would be a little hurt that he didn't respect my advice when he left. But it doesn't say that. It says that the father ran as soon as he saw from a great distance. He recognized his son and he ran to him there was the son dirty torn clothes and he embraced him i've often thought that the turning point of the story was when the son was sitting there in the pigsty and he realizing how much better it was at home he here he is he had hit rock bottom he was lost was it here the pivotal point of the story, and it was his uh, choice to come home? Was it his journey on the way home? No, I would like to submit to you this morning that that was not the important part. The important part was that the father was willing to embrace him. The father, because of his great love, had taken him back. You see, if if we decide in ourselves to turn and come back to Jesus, that really doesn't mean anything. There's nothing that we can do to return. But it's all in the Father's hands as he accepts us back and he embraces us. His mercy, his love. Before the Father put his robe on his son, before he got all cleaned up, he embraced him as he was, dirty, with pig slop on him, torn clothes, the results of sin all over him, he loved him. Verse 21, and the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. See, the son had a plan. He said, I know I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Just make me a servant. That, that will be better than what I have. He didn't think that he deserved it. Thank God, God had a plan as well. And his plan was better. See, none of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve God's attention, but he gives it to us because his great love for us. Another story, Luke 15, verse 8, the parable of the lost coin. It says there, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Here we see a picture of a coin lost in a house, lost while in the very presence of the owner and a coin that is absolutely unaware that it is lost. Back to my story. There I lay, or I sit in the middle of that circular of clothes. There I was amongst my family, not having a clue in the world that I was really lost. I was enjoying my time while others were searching for me. I heard footsteps coming up. And I could see boots coming closer and walking past where I was. And inside those boots was a police officer. He was invited to play this game. Wait a second, I didn't invite him to play this game. It became apparent to me that This game had gotten out of control, so I gave myself up. I stepped out from the circular of clothes to a stern look from a police officer. But but a look of exuberance, of, of happiness, of tears from a mother. who was was just happy to have their son back. We had the lost son. He was lost. He had ran away. The coin was lost at home. The son had run away from the father. The coin was there right beside them. The son knew that, or the, the prodigal son knew that he was lost. The coin didn't know. But Christ still seeks for both of them. Is it possible that even here in this church we could have lost coins? Even in the midst of the owner? The good news is that Christ still sweeps, he still light, uh, lights a lamp, and he's still searching. Last story, Luke fifteen four. In verse four, it says, "'What man of you, having a hundred sheep, "'if he loses one, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing." You know, sheep have a pretty easy job. They only have one job. What is that? Grow Grow wool. That's, I wasn't anticipating that. They follow the shepherd. That is their job. They follow. But every now and then those sheep get wandering eyes as they see the enticements of perhaps a green grassy field. They get distracted and they go astray. As the shepherd brought his sheep back, he finds one missing. See, he counted them because they were all important to him. When he arrived at a number 99 and that was his last one, He knew there was a problem. The shepherd didn't say, this is just too much trouble. You know, we can wait, we'll see if this one finds its way back and if so, I'll have him because I've got 99 and that's good enough. He didn't say that, but instead the Bible says that immediately the shepherd goes in search. As soon as the shepherd realized that the sheep was lost, he was in pursuit. He goes to great efforts to find. There is nothing, no distance too far, no hike too high, nothing too dangerous. He may be tired, but he doesn't stop until he finds his sheep. The sheep was sha- saved right where it was. See, the sheep is unable of its own self to to bring, to find his way back. So it is with any of us who wander aside. We're unable to find our way back. See, the sinner is lost until God finds them. They require the shepherd to rescue, to carry us. Salvation does not come through our seeking, but through God seeking after us. No one sheep is overlooked. All are special. He knows them all by name. So, one percent. Who are the one percent? Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. So who are the one percent? We all are. Whether like the prodigal in rebellion, the lost coin in, in his house, or as the lamb who wandered away, we are all the 1% that God is seeking. Whether it's one in a hundred, one a million, or one in a billion, he is searching for if that one. Christ's object lessons That book, page 187, it says, In the parable, the shepherd goes out to search for one sheep, the very least that can be numbered. So if there had been but one lost soul, Christ would have died for that one. One percent. God's search and rescue. In summary this morning, I want to tell you that one percent is not insignificant to God. It may seem small, but it makes a difference to him. God spent, spared no resource or expense in pursuing his children. He gave 100% and he didn't give 100% to get a return of 99. Without that one, he would not be complete. Originally, at the beginning, when you see the, uh, the Garden of Eden, Everything was complete. He had 100%. But things went wrong, and as he went about the garden and he asked, Adam, where are you? He had lost one. Now he knew where he was, but they were lost. And so it was right then, and even before then, that God put into effect the greatest rescue plan in history. And as one author uh, states it, it was a five-step plan. See, God didn't want to leave his children lost and alone, so he came and lived with them in a tent. And when they moved to land that he had provided for them, he lived with them in a temple. When the time came, he came and he got his feet dirty so that he could clean theirs. He came and he loved them so he could teach them how to love. He came to die so they could live. After that, he went to prepare a homecoming for them, all the while constantly thinking about them, and in the final phase, to return, to bring them with with him. He seeks us always. He loves us with a love greater than we can even imagine.